Penn State Conversations is a podcast produced by the Donald P. Bellisario College of Communications. Episode topics range from the people, programs, and events that shape the Bellisario College to discussing key aspects of life in the professional world for young and upcoming communications alumni. Please enjoy this episode of Penn State Conversations. This episode features alumnus Mike Abrams of the New York Times with Director of Strategic Communications, Steve Samsel. So you started in August or September? Um, well, the new role I started uh, just at the end of November. Okay, um, so it was the reason, okay. Yeah, and uh, before that I was on the standards team um, at the time. So in some ways, some of my job carried over, but there are a lot of new elements to it. So what is the job and what do you do? Sure. Uh, so it's kind of a made-up title. It's brand new at the Times. It's um, it's called Director of Journalism Practices and Principles. Um, I think it probably sounds more important than maybe it is. Uh, although I do think there's a lot of important work to be done. You know, titles are just titles. But what does it mean? Uh, so one part of the job is working with the standards team on um, how we develop our style book and communicate internally with, with changes in the evolution of language um, across the company. Um, another element of the job is helping with recruiting and testing of editing candidates. That, that has been part of my job for a while now. Um, and it's part of our practices and principles is making sure that when we're hiring, um, we're, we're upholding our values. We're finding people who can help make the times stronger um, and we're improving the times over over time by hiring in a smart way. Um, and then the new parts of the job really are about how we communicate across the company about our journalism. And this is really where I think you'll find, and you're, you're finding in newsrooms around the world, um, it's not just the old system where it's journalists alone in the newsroom. Now, because of the way we collaborate and the way we, we innovate and the way we have to work, um, in developing new products and new ways of delivering our journalism, you'll, you're finding more non-journalists working side by side with journalists. That might mean people who are trained in visual design for um, digital products. You might find engineering um, experts on how the ones and zeros line up so that the piece looks correct and goes to the right place and doesn't disturb um, the way people are logging into their subscriptions and all that. Relating to those audiences, is that a big piece of the job and making sure not only they understand what you're saying, but you understand, and then also this other party over there it almost sounds like, I don't know, pick your country, Switzerland in some ways or however. It absolutely. I mean, at a company, we're approaching, I think, 5,000 employees. Of that, maybe 1,700 of them are in the, in the newsroom who are journalists, which means there's a lot more people who aren't journalists at the company. Uh, but who care about the mission. But what you end up with is essentially they're all readers of the times and they all have strongly held views about what our coverage should or shouldn't be. And they may not always understand how decisions are made or why they're made. So sometimes we need to hear in the newsroom what that, that um, feedback is and be able to process it and deal with it. And sometimes it means we need to do our jobs better. Uh, and sometimes it means we need to do a better job of explaining why we made decisions we made internally so that when people are out and about in their own lives, they can also share that with, with their neighbors and their friends and other people that they come into contact with. You gave a great example about 
the audiences and the people that you work with, one of the things you said that kind of perked my ears about was, was the change in the language through the years. Can you give me an example of that? And I know that I don't not to pin you down, but I'm, I'm curious, like what, what's changed about maybe some piece of language or how you guys say something now that might not have been the same when you joined sure. the company? Sure. Um, what's interesting about the Times style book is, you know, it's, a lot of people would look at it and say that it's kind of old fashioned, that we still use courtesy titles before names, Mr., Ms., Mix, um, in, in much of our coverage. And we do have a lot of rules like that. Um, and we generally have a philosophy that we don't want our style book to be at the vanguard of language. We don't want to succumb to, to fads. We want to make sure that what, what our language rules and guidance are, are conveying are what most of our audience will understand. So we don't want to just, you know, react in a knee-jerk way to language. But one example recently, I would say over the summer, would be amid all of the unrest um, after Floyd's death in the streets. Um, I think there was a lot, there was a re-examination of how we were referring to African-American individuals. Uh, for a long time, we used the word black, lowercase. Um, we used to use that as a noun. We then switched at some point to say, only use this as, an, as a modifying term, uh, black people, um, black groups, black leaders, not, not calling people blacks because it just sounds harsh to the ear. It sounds, you're then just assigning somebody one category and they're not, that's not reflecting an entire person's, um, what makes a person a person. Um, what we changed over the summer after a lot of discussion with staff members and, and evaluating what the Associated Press was doing and the Washington Post, um, we decided to uppercase the term black in all uses with regard to race. And that was to really reflect the idea that there was a shared sense of history and culture among um, people who identify as black. That's not to say that everyone feels or thinks the same way, just that there is a, especially in the United States, a common experience of oppression, disrespect, racism, slavery, going back hundreds of years and so we felt, um, we saw the language rapidly change in a broad way for our audience and felt like we needed to be part of that change. As you're doing these changes and working through them now and the virus that everybody else is, is, is working with, it'd be one thing to be doing this in a newsroom. My sense is you're probably not doing that like a lot of other people, you're doing it in fits and starts in different places. How has that challenged and or made you, I don't know, maybe better at what you do if it has or what, what, what has come with that? that virtual approach from the newsroom side of it and this constituencies you're balancing. Today's a great day for that discussion because we rely heavily on Slack, the uh, communications tool. And then there's a big outage internationally today with Slack. And so everybody decided that it's like the old bus stop rule. If the bus doesn't show up in 15 minutes, you get to go home and not do work, except we're already home. So you don't have any excuse. Um, I, I think it, it has made work easier in some regards because you go five feet from your bed to your desk and you can work but it's made it harder because something that could take five minutes in a hallway might require zoom or google hangout meetings and slack discussions and email chains and so you know the communication is a challenge but there are definitely interesting ways that that our journalists have gotten better at what they do an example of this would be in the past year, our live coverage of the virus and of politics. These are constantly updated. Reporters are filing from the field a, a paragraph or two at a time. 
And the teams of editors and reporters who are working on those are in persistent Google Hangouts where they'll turn their cameras off, but they can talk to one another all day long or just ignore it if they need to and put it on mute. But they can talk as if they're sitting next to each other and then work in Slack and instant messaging, work on that Hangout and do editing in real time that approximates what it's like to work side by side. All these, again, I'm going to use constituencies. I don't know. What, amidst all those, what do you, is there, is an overriding thing of what you worry most about on a day-to-day -day basis in your job? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of different things, but is there, is there one thing that's always top of mind or certain issues that, that are, that are kind of keep you up at night or going to be the first thing you there that you turn your computer on in the morning? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of them that are all related to trust in us, the public's trust in us. I mean, the more we rely on readers, we're up to something like 7 million subscriptions, digital and print combined, which is bigger than we've ever had in our history, which is great. But it also, if you think about that, is a vulnerability in the sense that if people don't trust what they're paying for, then you have no business. You have no business model. So, so that's what keeps me and many others up at night is, are we getting the report right? Are we putting it in context? And when we aren't, are we acknowledging it in a clear way as quickly as possible? And all of that is aspirational. We want to be correct all the time. We want to have perfect context all the time, but we all know that we're human and that we fall down sometimes. I think the subset of that would be hoping there's not like a bad actor involved in intentionally doing something wrong. I don't think we have anybody like that. You always hope you don't have anybody on the staff like that. That's part of the hiring piece is really being careful about who are we hiring and what is the person's uh, past experience like. And, and um, I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves and sometimes we, we fall on, down on that. But I think a lot of our process is about checking the facts, tapping the brakes if we have to. Um, we always tell people when they're hired and we tell people over and over in training, being first is never the most important goal. Being right is the most important goal. And we'd rather lose a scoop to someone else if we're worried about the sourcing or the accuracy than to go first. What do you think you're best at? Like, why are you suited for this role? And, and when people say, hey, I'm working with Mike today on this, or I've got to, I got to call Mike about this or talk to him, what, what are they getting from you in return? What do you, what do you bring into this process, do you think? Well, I don't like to boast about myself. I guess what I'll say other people have said about me is that I tend to be calm uh, under pressure, uh, that, that I can diffuse tense situations. And, and a lot of this communication that I'm going to be dealing with, there are going to be people who feel really strongly about whether it's an op-ed that was published and they may have concerns about why it was published or questions about why an article included or didn't include certain sources uh, or what our process was in a headline. Uh, a lot of times you're dealing with people who feel very strongly on one side or another. And so I feel like that kind of being calm, listening and having people feel like they can approach me and talk about it and feel like they're gonna get an answer that makes sense. They feel like they were heard. They feel like something's gonna be better in the long run for having to have that conversation. How do you know you've had a good day? <laughs> um, you know, I feel like, you know, I can, I'm a list maker. So I have, I, I tend to, and this goes back to my reporting and editing days too. Um, there are things you have to do every day that are, that are easy. You check off your list. And then they're kind of the bigger targets, the mid-range things that you want to do. I, I make lists of those too. 
Um, and then big, big targets, the kinds of things where you look back at your year and say, oh, if I get these three or four things done this year, it'll have been a good year. And I feel like I, I've had a good day when all of the little things that had to get done that day got done. Um, and the other stuff, you know, I was able to chip away at it. And I didn't feel like I procrastinated too much on those. Um, and then I guess the last thing would just be that if other people needed something of me, that I was able to at least get that stuff done. Because there's always the things that you couldn't plan on that that drive up on deadline and and feeling like you're able to get your work done, but then also respond as people need you. You mentioned your calm demeanor, and I, I kind of feel that through the conversation. I'm, I'm, but I'm curious in this year and in the past couple years of the attacks, for lack of a better word, on journalism, right? That, that you know, this is this isn't this is fake. This isn't true. Don't trust them. And on your side, you know what you're doing is vetted, and you didn't try to be. You tried to be first, but you got it best. How do you deal with that? How do you at some point? And is there a point where you're like, they're just going to say it, so you can't tell them, you can't prove otherwise? Like, how how does that play out on day to day for you and the people you work with? This is a constant struggle for all of us. I mean, I think it can be really easy to let Twitter particularly run your life. I mean, it's a very vocal group of people who are quick to respond, often against whatever else is being said. There's a, I saw a tweet the other day that somebody said, you don't want to be the main character of Twitter today. Uh, the main character of Twitter is never someone who's being celebrated. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, look, they can call us fake news. They can say that we're, it's a hoax or this or that, but um, one, you have to know and believe in the mission and the process of what you're doing is right. And two, I think we have to do a better job and we try to do this of pointing out in our coverage in real time when misinformation or disinformation are being spread. We have to share the fact-based, reality-based information right there for people. And we have to do it over and over again. And we have to find ways of sending that information viral so that people have correct information in their hands. I think sometimes we have to explain ourselves and push back publicly, although we have to be really careful how we do that. More often, I would say not necessarily in a defensive way, but in a, here's what our process was, here's how we did it. Um, and sometimes that means making top editors available for interviews. Sometimes that means having what we call Times Insider, which are features that you can find on the web about how we did something. Um, and I think it also just means sometimes taking the lumps, you know, just realizing people are going to complain and they're going to criticize. But if you stay the course, you do what you believe is right, and you're really doing it to your best ability, that in the long run, it'll work out. How much has that changed in your sense from when you were a reporter or, or earlier in your career? Like how much, there were always people who were going to say, oh, well, they got that wrong or oh, I was misquoted, but it feels different now. Um, how, how, I mean, how does it feel different to you? Yeah, I think it's not, it's non, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it, ahead. It, I think it's yeah. not nonstop now. And it used to be that when I worked as a reporter, you know, you'd, if the complaining person would show up at the front desk and then you'd go to the front desk and chat in the lobby with the person. Um, and sometimes you could work it out, but often you, you wouldn't, or you'd go to a public meeting and you'd be covering it and people would gripe or grumble about, oh, there's the, that you're just interested in selling newspapers was the famous thing, which I always thought was funny because most people already paid for their newspaper. So what, what were you selling with your story about the the zoning dispute. I mean, um, but I would say now it's constant. It's email. It's direct from Twitter. It's on television. It's from the president. It's from 
the public. It's on comments underneath articles all the time. And I think there's just noise. It's very easy to comment on things online. We all kind of di divorce ourselves from what we're saying when we type those comments in. And so I think you have to take a little bit of it with a grain of salt, but you have to listen. I mean, you can't go to every reader and explain why what you meant to say. So if you got something wrong, you have to go be, acknowledge it in a really clear way as quickly as possible. What kind of things are you consuming and watching in terms of journalism? Like who else and, and what are entities are, are you getting information for or benchmarking with? Sure. You know, I definitely read the Times. Um, I read uh, NewJersey.com, which I live in New Jersey, so I try to stay up with local news. I read uh, CenterDaily.com uh, because it's my hometown paper. I used to deliver it when I was growing up. I read The Collegian um, online. I was the editor of The Collegian, so I always have a soft spot for it. Um, I read the Washington Post, although not cover to cover, I have a digital subscription and I tend to look at their newsletters and then I look at the, the particular headlines that interest me. Uh, and then I would say beyond that, probably the New Yorker um, is the one magazine that I read pretty regularly. Um, and then I watch generally CNN, MSNBC, I'll check in on Fox News occasionally just to kind of see what what's being said there. I have sampled some of the more fringe networks. OANN is one that people are talking about and Newsmax. Um, they're not my cup of tea. I don't generally think they're based in reality, but I think it's important to know what a lot of people are watching and consuming because um, we have to figure out a way to, to, to reach out to people with what we consider to be reality. Well, and I guess that you had mentioned in stories about, you know, or coming and immediately calling out a fact or saying this is true. That wasn't part of the deal 10 years ago, maybe five years ago, right? So it just adds another layer. You know, what was there was they may come to the desk and say, hey, you were wrong about this, but the facts were somehow agreed upon, or at least right. how has that changed what you do or is it just now a fresh, an addition to, to things that you consider? Well, I think you see, particularly in the Times, a lot more articles written by multiple writers, two, three, four, five, or six people. I think that's a reflection of how difficult it is to really get on top of a big story. And so often what you'll see is those different names, and that means maybe somebody's an expert on national security issues and is just paying attention to that one piece of the story. And maybe there's somebody who's really skilled at bringing it all together, and that's the lead writer, and then, and then different reporters are dealing with different elements of that. So that's one thing is the staffing on the reporting end, I think has changed. Uh, I think, you know, it used to be that it was this both sides-ism, you know, you always have to get a comment from both sides. And I think there's a lot, there's, there's rightly a lot of criticism of that kind of basic, a fair report has comments from both sides. Well, first of all, we all know that there are multiple sides to many issues. So there's no such thing really in many issues as both sides. I think the key is you know, are you getting uh, a good range of voices in these stories? And are you really getting enough of a, enough sourcing and enough context to really understand what the truth is or as close to the truth and reality can be? And that, just, that doesn't mean going to the one person off the record, but it means you, maybe you get that off the record comment and you go and circle around it and report it, really test your assumptions, test that source's assumptions to try to get closer to that story. I think all of that has made the job harder in some ways, digital is easier because you put this first version out there and you can update it quickly, but it but it's harder because it's nonstop. There's no deadline anymore. Deadline is all the time. 
you mentioned entities when I asked, and I guess I asked, I asked specifically about entities. Let me ask about people, or are there, are there people you trust? I mean, because you would have been on the fringe of where there were three newscasts, right? And there were three people to trust, right? And again, maybe only one voice, and maybe that was different, who knows, than what we know. But are there people that you inherently trust in terms of it's something coming from them? Yeah, I mean, I at the particular times, I feel like um, our Washington staff, um, led by Peter Baker and Maggie Haberman, I think um, they they and their colleagues have a really good track record about doing the hard work, doing the reporting, and having the expertise to get the story. I would say, in terms of other, um, I mean, I, I can say the same about other areas of our coverage. We have experts in science. We have. Uh, lawyers covering court systems. I feel like in a lot of ways you need that kind of expertise to be covering these things and having intelligent discussions with your sources um, more than ever. Um, I would say though, but it, do, it doesn't matter. I'm a big Penn State football fan and I, and I find that like, you know, I read many of the beat reporters out there and usually you get a pretty good idea each week of what's going on when you read uh, Neil Rudell and Altuna and um, Dave Jones and Harrisburg and and all the other writers for, for Penn Live. I mean, you read around and you get a good sense. Oh, okay, something's going on with the defense this week. And you know, you know that 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 James Franklin and his coaching staff is keeping that closely held. But you start to get a sense if if one of the players is coming out with a comment after the game, that the, those reporters are going to chase it down and figure out what it was all about. And I think to me it's the same thing as no matter what your interest is, is finding those people who cover it best. So if you're looking to buy a washing machine, you know, I would say the wire cutter, the, the service that the time zones is a pretty good place, but everybody knows Consumer Reports tests those things and you're gonna go look at that and you're probably gonna trust it because they're not taking money from, you know, GE to, to give it a better rating. Is the football stuff, and I, I wanna get there eventually, but now that you got me there, is, is that a sanity break, a passion, a little bit of everything amidst what you do? Like, how does that play out for you? Um, you know, I grew up in State College, so it's been since I can remember, you know, going to tailgates and um, it's just been a part of life. Um, I would say this year was an escape. I mean, it, a lot of us wondered whether it was worth it, you know, for these players to put themselves at risk and the, and the coaches to be away from their families. Uh, that's for them to decide. Um, but for me, it was an escape. I know we watched the games and it was for a little while, you're not thinking about work and you're not thinking about whatever stresses in your life you're just kind of watching a game you can yell at the tv if they're not playing well and you can cheer if they are um and then reading about it to me is just i, I part of me is always going to be curious about the stories you don't hear about that may come out later in books or uh years years after the players are gone um it's just fun to follow as a storyline each year and i can i don't know about you but i can remember almost every team going back since i was a kid and different elements about those teams so In terms of the football, right, you probably ended up at a tailgate or it was a ubiquitous thing in the, in the community that you you kind of became part of and, and, and got an interest in. Do you remember where your journalism interest came from? Like you delivered the paper, was it before then? Was that just the job? Like when did you know this is what you wanted to do? Um, it wasn't when I was delivering the papers, um, although I would say when I got to Penn State as a student, for, uh, my roommate, I always liked writing. And um, my roommate was working at the Collegian. He had started in the summer uh, before I started in the fall. And he said, hey, you ought to try out for the Collegian, see if you like it. And I, 
it's sort of like when you find your people. Uh, I found my tribe there, and um, and I think it just you start to feel like you can do something. And you and it was really interesting to go. I think the moment that really hit me was um, the first Gulf War was breaking out on campus that that winter, my freshman year, and I went out with a a more experienced reporter on the, on the collegiate staff. And we went out to get reaction from students who were really worried, is there gonna be a draft? What's gonna happen? Is something gonna come here? Are there gonna be bombs and missiles? There were a lot of questions and fears and there were things that we, one, could capture and then see students reading the next day in classrooms. But then also in the coming days, you know, you could go, go get on the phone with a professor who was an expert in that part of the world who could start to explain, well, here's what the policy is. Here's what it might mean. And you start to provide answers in a really quick way to the questions you not only have yourself, but that all of your fellow students have. And I think from that point on, it was just a matter of trying to just learn everything I could about the profession and really be, I loved being a part of that. Like you're curious about something, go get the answer and then tell people about it. And there's a, there's a, a payoff and a piece of adrenaline that comes with those, seeing those kids in class reading it or knowing it's there. As your career has progressed, what is the feeling that that mirrors that as an editor in roles that you've had or in the position that you have now that, that may not, because the byline's not there probably as often at all or at all. So what are, what are the things that make that evoke that feeling in this position for you? I think everybody loves, you know, if you've, if you've edited a piece that ends up on the front page of your local paper or on the Times, that's a great feeling to know that you had a hand in making that piece clearer or as clear as it could be or helping a writer shine. I think that's one thing. Uh, I think it's also when a writer sends you a note and says, hey, you know, you really helped me. You, you made this better. Or they, they seek you out, whether it's other editors or other writers, seek you out for your help and your guidance on something. I think that you, to me, it's the same thing for teachers probably, is you, the silent feeling of knowing that you've helped someone, but then also that, that outward experience of having someone thank you when they when you actually did it's sort of that confirmation that you were able to help them and I would say the last part of that is if if you were involved in a really big line of coverage that ends up being recognized publicly getting lots of awards or making some kind of change in society for the better I mean I think we all want idealistically to make the world better if you've written a story or you've helped edit a story that led to a change that made people safer or took a dangerous product off the shelves or uh, whatever it is. Maybe maybe your town needed another set of stop signs because kids were being hit by cars in your coverage, shined a light on that and led to change. That, that knowing that you were part of that process of helping open people's eyes to the world, helping them understand it better and making change is, is part of the, to me, that idealism that, that drives us in the business. So why does journalism matter? Well, I mean, it's, I think the founding of our country was built on a strong press. And I, I can't remember which founding father said, you know, would, would you want um, a strong executive or would you want a strong um, independent press? And they, they said they wanted, I think it was Jefferson, wanted a strong independent press. I mean, the, it's part of how our country should operate is that holding power to account, chronicling things that are interesting to people, describing the world, helping us make sense of the things around us. Um, people have been telling stories since the beginning of people. Uh, and so the idea that we can be a part of illuminating the world, I think we, we are all looking for meaning in life. And to me, at, a, at the very most basic 
core to me is we're helping explain what this rock is that we're all floating through space on. Are you more optimistic or pessimistic about the future of journalism? Both. Um, you know, I think it gets harder and harder. And I think there are definitely people who are critical of it. And we've all been divided up and chopped up into our own camps. Um, I think that makes it harder, particularly if you're part of a mass media organization, whether it's ESPN or CNN or the New York Times, or I mean, even if you look at covering the Pence 8 beat, I mean, how many places are covering it just in Center County alone that didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago? Um, I think that makes it harder, but that's also the promise, you know, like to me that that whole, whole idea is let the chips fall where they may. I mean, a lot of chips are falling right now. Um, hopefully, you know, you're going to carry this metaphor really too far, but hopefully people are going to want to eat the chips that fell to the floor and didn't crumble into a million pieces. Um, so if you do it well, if you if it's made well, if it's prepared well, then those are the ones people are going to want to consume. Thank you for listening to this episode of Penn State Conversations. For more information about the Donald P. Bellisario College of Communications, including the latest news and upcoming events, visit bellisario.psu.edu or find us on social media at PSU Bellisario on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.